Welcome to the Restore Ministries Australia podcast, where we desire to connect you with people, teaching, encouragement and resources that will see you and those around you restored to true humanity. Join us as we seek to help you apply the grace of God onto the details of your life. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Restore Ministries Australia podcast. I'm joined again today by Peter Sondergeld, founder of Restore Ministries, and I have two new voices here with me today. We've got Kurt Peters, who is the pastor at St. Matt's Botany, and he's incredibly excited to be with us. He's also a board member of Restore Ministries. I also have Renee Gilmore, who operates as a small group leader for some of the Restore Ministries small group discipleship programs. Welcome, Peter. Kurt, Renee, hey. it's good to have yeah. you all here. It's good to, to be, be here. Exciting to be here. We're going to have a great conversation today, I think. We're um, looking into the concept of small groups and essentially how do we lead small groups that are productive and safe and just really well connected. Obviously, as things are beginning to change with restrictions in the COVID-19 pandemic, we're seeing a change in the way we're gathering, the way we're meeting together and the way that we're really connecting with other people and small groups are going to be such an essential part of that. So we really just want to look at having a conversation in how those of us that lead small groups, and we're not just talking about pastors and pastoral team members in churches, but anyone who's responsible for leading a small group of people, how can we do that? in a way that's um, most effective. So, Peter, I'd love it if you'd start to share with us today. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that comes to mind in terms of uh, any kind of small group that you might uh, be leading in the local church is just being aware of the, the time and the place that we're in. You know, we've we've had something of a lockdown over the last couple of months. People have been on their own or they've been kind of with their family most of the time. They've become quite accustomed to uh, not opening themselves up to other people and uh, that's not just the case for uh, uh, group members or, or you know people who are part of whatever group it is in the local mm-hmm. church it's actually the case for leaders as well and we know that it's really important to um, you know for relationships to be built between people and to grow between people and in particular also between them and God that people need to be open with one yeah. another so just being aware of that kind of dynamic that uh, maybe even just in the early stages, there'll just be a little bit of awkwardness and discomfort with uh, getting back uh, together in person, just being aware of that. And also being aware of it as leaders that we will be feeling that like that as well and that it'll feel a little strange sometimes. Mm. I think one of the um, one of the things that's been going on um, that I've been talking about quite a bit is, is, is a very kind of two-pacedness about what's going on and not a whole lot in between. So people are either really enjoying the, um, the slowdown in things or they're really struggling with it. Some people are really enjoying doing things via technology and they feel like they can be more personal. And then there's other people who are just going, yeah, I'm just sick of this. Uh, I just want to get back to being in person. Uh, so I think it's going to be critical uh, for uh, leaders when they get back together Um, in churches with uh, whatever group of people they're leading. It's going to be important for them to be personal. Um, I've always uh, said in the uh, church up here that I lead that uh, you always replicate a lower concentration of what you are. So if you're not coming in as a leader and and thinking, uh, I'm going to push into this space a bit and I'm going to be personal with other people, you're always going to replicate a lesser concentration of that and you'll have a group running that's less personal than, than what you are. Uh, so I think that's that's helpful 
for the leaders to just kind of keep that in mind. Yeah. I've been thinking about that too, but also thinking about the fact that for me to connect really well with others, I actually need to be connecting with God really personally. So in this time, I've even found that it's probably been easy to stop talking to God about the details of my life because the details have actually been a lot more mundane than they have been in past times where I've had a lot more going on. So, but actually still connecting with God really personally in the details um, has been a good way to, for me to continue connection that's really close with God. And I think that will help me in leading other people um, and connecting with them is foremost just really keeping that connection with God really strong. Yeah. Can I ask Ed, what, what do you, can you just give us one thing that you do like in a really practical way to keep things really yeah. personal between you and God? Yeah, I, I just write, I journal um, with God. And in that way, I, I'm much more personal because I'm just writing and pouring out my heart um, to him in that way. And I'll even do it. Um, it might sound crazy, but I'll put on a timer and go, even for the next four minutes, I'm just going to talk to God. Yeah. And, um, and that way I'm quite concise and really talking about what's going so, on in my heart rather than get a little bit off track. So yeah, yeah. doing that is really helpful in just connecting with God. Usually I then just want to keep going and talk for a lot longer because it's just that's so awesome. good to connect with God like that in the yeah. details of what's going on. Yeah, that's great. It's really good. You guys, um, bringing up the concept of being personal, I think is really important. Um, and it's something we touched on a little bit last week too, as we talked about vulnerability, but how can we be personal and how appropriate is it to be in your depth of your own, I know, personal sharing, I guess, as a leader, when you're in charge of ministering to a small group? Personally, I think it's, I think it's something that I've played with over the years. Uh, I tend to be someone who is kind of happy to be very, very vulnerable and expose myself and who I am. And people would say about me and my wife that we're really real. So the other pastors that I work with, they're the godly ones and we're the real ones, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is another word for sinful, but I'm not entirely sure. I'm going to take it in the most <laughs> light. You're real, they'll say. Um, and so I think it just means that we're more willing to uh, talk about where we fall short and that's always been really really helpful for my ministry um, because I feel like if you are willing to go there and let people know who you are and be personal um, that it opens the door for relationship Mm -hmm. it opens the door for them to say hey this guy's this guy's disrobing a little bit I can take my clothes off a little bit as well not completely going with that metaphor completely, but there's a willingness to be vulnerable, mm. which has always been helpful for ministry. Yeah, that's uh, that's so critical uh, to seeing change and transformation happen. Mm. I think um, one of the reactions to uh, to shame is to to want to hide and uh, and not be seen. And uh, unfortunately, I think whenever we hide and we're not uh, seen, then change becomes pretty difficult and pretty tricky at a church level. So sometimes I, uh, I may I may overstate it, but there are times where I feel like shame is kind of public enemy number one for uh, local churches uh, because it's it's really hard to kind of get to the point where real change starts to happen if uh, people are not being honest uh, with God and honest uh, with each other and even honest with themselves. The other thing I think that's critical about leaders doing it and doing what you were just talking about, Kurt, is just the reality that uh, shame says to people that they're a unique case and there's no one else like them. 
And uh, I've certainly experienced it with you and your wife where you're uh, brutally honest about stuff and brutally real. And straight up what it does is it kind of bursts that bubble of shame that says there's no one else like me. And all of a sudden people are going, oh, no, there is someone else like me. And and that's, you know, you and I have been close friends for a a good while now. And uh, I think over and over you have done that for me when I've spoken to you where you just be open and you you be real, you be personal about your struggles and your weaknesses. It's so it's so disarming to me. And uh, it's like a shame kind of antidote for me, you know, because mm-hmm. it's like, no, there's another brother and he's struggling with similar things. Because I think the tendency in churches sometimes is that people think the leaders are, are the experts, right? They're the ones that have kind of got it mm-hmm. together and everyone else has got to live up to their amazing example. But we didn't, you know. If if you're on paid staff at a church, you didn't get the gig because you've got everything squared away. Mm. Far from it. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Do you think isolation and this whole isolation caper, where we're all kind of and and not meeting together, is is make us less personal? Is that what you're? Is that what you're thinking has happened? And less willing to be intimate and vulnerable, or that will come back uh, concerned about going there and being more personal? I think, like I said earlier, I think it's. It's a little too paced. I think yeah, it's, exactly. in some okay. senses people have been more personal. In other senses, people have been less personal. What I think yeah, has yeah. happened is people are less seen. And I, I would even include the physical component to that. I think they're just less yeah, seen. Yeah, I think there is. Hmm. So, yep. so to get into you know a large group, which in the context of where we've been the last couple of months could be 15 people, and be seen by them, and then to talk about yourself in front of them or just to be personal with them is a bit of a step up from where a lot of people yeah. have been at. And I'd want to say in a funny thing in that regard is I think on Zoom in a small group, you feel actually more seen. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> so so what, I've, what I've seen is how uncomfortable some people have been on Zoom because when you're in a small group and you're in a circle, you don't have everyone looking directly at you. Mm. The whole time. But when you're on a Zoom call with eight other people, everyone can look at your face the entire time. And so I actually think in a Zoom small group, the shame actually increases huh. yeah. and you're less likely because of that to be to be personal. Um, and so that's why you have teenagers sitting in their rooms on Zoom with black hoodies on in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> like what is that? What is that? Yeah, yeah. They're not just trying to be cool, I don't think. Hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a really just the medium – is increases the shame. I think you're right. I mean, even having your own camera view on on your screen right in front of yeah. you, you know, there there would there have been times where that has been quite distracting to me. And I, I um, appreciate the grace of another pastor in town who told me how to hide my camera view on Zoom. It's just like <laughs> let's do that because I don't want to have to be thinking about myself and the other people at the same time. Yeah, it makes yeah. me sound pretty narcissistic, but it does go through your mind. I was only going to talk about the fact that we get into the trap of thinking that if we're not in the same specific situation as someone else, that we might not be able to speak into that and they actually understand um, that we can understand each other from a perspective. Um, But what I've been finding is that time and time again, I will share um, a heart issue that I'm going through. And even though someone else is in a totally different situation, they actually understand the same issue. They're just in a totally different Mm. situation. And so the more vulnerable I am, not just about the details of what's going on for me, but the more vulnerable I am about my heart issues and I'm really tempted to think this at this time or I'm really struggling with 
yeah, that's good. feeling anxious, then even good. if someone else is in a totally different situation, they connect with me and say, oh, do you feel that as well? Or I, um, I'm going through those same feelings, even though we're in a different situation. Mm. So trying to get more, uh, less talking about details and more about my heart and what's going on, that seems to be able to connect with people a whole lot more. Mm. Do you want to? Yeah, you're kind of giving them giving them permission to be honest, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. You give them permission to be honest, and ultimately, unless they are honest before the Lord, then you, they're kind of limiting His capacity to pour grace into their life. Mm. I think the skill there in what you say, Renee, is leaders just being able to kind of be clear about where they're at themselves and be able to drill down themselves into yeah. some of the the heart kind of motives and. Mm and um, drives kind of going on inside of them. And I wonder, Kurt, whether you would be interested in throwing in, throwing in on this because I know that you and I have talked a little bit about the importance of reflection. Do you think you can just throw in a, a couple of thoughts about uh, the importance uh, of leaders kind of slowing down and being clear about uh, who the Lord is and what's going on in their own hearts, that kind of thing? Uh, so a really quick summation of my story is two and a half years ago, I burned out. Uh, in ministry. So I've been in ministry for 13 years. I burned out in ministry, didn't really know what was going on. And then about six months later was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And what the Lord did during that season in my life was obviously stop me <laughs> physically because I burned out and emotionally. And so in that, I actually took two months off. And in those two months, I, I said, I'm going to get rid of the phone, going to get rid of the laptop, everything. My wife took them all off me. And um, I just basically said, what, what are the core things I need to do as a human being to get back into the right space? And I decided number one had to be spending time with the Lord. Mm. Um, at that point, I, I was really struggling to read the word. I could mm. sing and I could talk and pray and that's all I did. And so I'd go for an hour and a half walk every day. And what I discovered over that two months of walking every day for an hour and a half and just talking with the Lord is um, just how important it is to spend time with him reflecting, taking, and it, when I think about reflect, when I say reflection, it's not just this internal process of thinking within yourself, but it's, it's relating to him um, as he has described himself and his word so that as you look at him and what he says, you understand who you are mm. and your life a little bit better mm. and your situation. And so since that time, that has been the, that's my one thing. So if there's one thing I need to do every day, I need to spend time reflecting with the Lord, walking with him, listening to him, um, all the different metaphors you can kind of come up with. But this idea of actually seeing myself, who I am, what I'm doing, my situation, my relationships in light of who he is and what he's doing. Mm. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, totally, man. I mean, it's that. And I think that's part of the dynamic of what's happened for a lot of people over this time where everything's slowed down culturally is I think some of the, certainly my experience, and again, it's two-paced, so it can go either way, but one of the things that's happened is the the cracks that were there at the very beginning have just become a bit more noticeable. And I think slowing down does that. It's, it's, uh, it's an opportunity for a, just an honest kind of assessment of where things are at. It's an opportunity to see and to know more clearly uh, what's going on inside of you? I think um, yeah, it's so so critical that we have a good rhythm in life, so we make space for the Lord to have those, I guess, uh, less intense kind of times with Him, if I can put it that way. 
and uh, just richly relational times where he can speak to us and show us things and we can see the truth about ourselves. Yeah. Mm. I've also, in this time, had to move towards other women who I know will ask me questions that will help me to reflect on Mm. what's actually going on inside me. And so that's been really helpful too, to have people in your life who um, will ask those questions and not let me get away with just me minimizing something that might be going on, but actually noticing the details of what I'm talking about and then drilling down and asking a few more questions about that, that then helped me to go, oh, I actually hadn't thought about that or I hadn't seen that Mm. in myself. And that's just been really helpful for me and then helpful for me to learn how to do that um, with other women as well. Mm. You're really blessed by those people, aren't you? Like you, like when they ask you those questions, you feel like it's, it's like God speaking to you, you know, he's just, he's yeah. giving you this person to help you reflect and in a sense, come back to him or have mm. a, a greater understanding of his grace in your life. And Yeah. Sometimes awesome. I actually go, no, I don't want to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, sometimes it's hard to hear it and think, oh, this is going to mean I have to really see and be exposed to what might actually be going on. So mm. that's, it's not always easy to um, be asked those questions. And I've, wanted to pull away and withdraw from them at times because I don't want to head there. But I know that when I actually do answer honestly, um, God just does a whole bunch of things in me that wouldn't have happened otherwise. You've all raised some really great points, I think, that kind of leads into where I'm hoping we might be able to go next. But those thoughts around practicing personal vulnerability um, within a small group and investing in the depth of personal reflection and intimacy with God and what you just spoke about, Renee, in terms of keeping relationships that really push you and drive you and question you. Mm-hmm. Um, and how can we use those tools and perhaps some others to just ensure that the groups that we're facilitating are places that are safe and allow that vulnerability and that safety for the participants that we're leading? Yeah, I think uh, just as a segue from what we were just talking about, and I think what's critical is that for want of a better expression it's important that the leaders put their heads on the on the chopping block first um, in terms of being personal mm-hmm. I think there's there's something incredibly disarming uh, for other people when leaders are prepared to be as as personal as they're comfortable you know my experience is that it becomes a bit of a virus a bit of a good virus in everyone else in the group they just kind of go well if they're prepared to do that, I will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not long before you have a bunch of people doing it. And then the cool thing about that, and this is something I talk about a little bit in uh, with restoration groups, is that all of a sudden everyone's got blackmail material on each other, <laughs> you know? And it, it, once you get that kind of vibe going on where people are being honest and, and uh, appropriately transparent with each other, then all of a sudden that the tendency of that is to is to keep going. Mm. Uh, so leaders being vulnerable and taking the first risk, I think, is one way that leaders can uh, begin that journey of having a safe group. Have you ever seen that go wrong, mate? Yeah, what are you thinking? Oh, like, have you ever, where you've shared and it's just where people have just shut down as a consequence and not been able to cope with it rather than it, it become you setting the tone that they all follow or has it always gone well? Yeah, I think what's important is to provide wiggle room for people to be as personal as they're comfortable. And this Mm -hmm. kind of probably tracks to the second thought that I had about having a safe group is you need to have some good clarity about the purpose of the group and the kind of dynamic that you want to see in the group Mm -hmm. itself. And you need to front end load that Mm -hmm. in the way that you lead. So I think um, regular reminders about what uh, the purpose of the group is and and what we're all turning up to... um, to do in the group, I think those things are really 
important. I never used to think that. I think years ago, uh, it's, it's like, all right, let's just get in there and have a crack. And I think there's more possibility for it to uh, to go AWOL a yeah. bit in that situation. Whereas now yeah. I think, yeah. let's be really, really clear on the front end about what we're doing and what we're hoping to achieve by getting the group together and do that, regularly remind people of that. I think usually the groups that I've been in when I've been really personal, I've had someone else in the group who uh, I knew would actually, I guess, show a lot of empathy that I'd shared. And that made me feel really safe that there was someone there who um, just said, man, that sounds really hard or uh, just showed a whole bunch of empathy. And the more people see that happen, um, the more comfortable they feel about sharing, knowing that you're not just going to have this kind of positive spin on what they've just shared and tell them it's going to be okay but you've just let them sit in sharing something really personal and you've all empathized with them and said yeah that sounds that sounds tough or that's been really hard and I've found the more that happens in a group the safer it becomes. I think that's that's awesome because I think one of the things that can happen in a group context is when you think about how do I run a safe group one of the one of the places that my head goes to is like well you you need to correct people when they head in a direction that's not the focus of the group and there may be a time where you need to do that down the track but by and large correcting people says to everyone else in the group this group is not safe yeah (laughs) because I could get Mm. corrected I could get rebuked publicly in front of someone else so I think uh, what you're talking about there I think is really really helpful because what we're saying is the leaders take responsibility and people within the group take responsibility yeah. for a really positive supportive direction in the group and creating yeah. the safety in the group and you do that not through um, a police force so to speak you actually do it through positive reinforcement identifying with people suffering get, getting alongside them um, not letting anyone feel like they're alone yeah And I guess a small group that I run constantly is the one of me and my four children. And I find that um, when one of them shares something really personal and I slow down and go, you know what, thanks for sharing that, rather than jumping straight in and doing what you're saying and just correcting them and you might think – what you said, you did what, and you want it, you want to head there. Mm. But the more I just say to them, that's that's really great that you could share that with us. Mm. And if that happens in front of the other kids, the other three all think oh, I could share what's going on uh, for me as well. And so I think families, when families model that, I've then modeled that in other small groups that I've led. But it's been really fruitful in that family context of when you do that. The safer you make um, your environment for your kids to share, they share back. So that's also been Mm. part of where I've learnt that skill is uh, I know my kids will open up to me more the more I make them feel safe. Mm. Isn't that the bit that I love too about that, that example that you've given there? is you're communicating to the actual child who shared the thing that it's safe to share that. Yeah. But you're also communicating to your other three kids without actually talking to them yeah. that it's safe to share that. Yeah, that's and right. And so they're taking that away as well. And I think that, that that's what happens in a in a group, yeah. in a church group when, when we do those kind of things is not it's not just the person who you're talking to that receives that that sense of safety, but it's actually everyone else as well. Yeah. And I have no doubts that um I mean, hopefully other people have been in groups like this, not just me, where um, there's just almost a palpable sense of expectation. And sometimes that can be on the behalf of leaders, but I think often participants kind of join a group and there's some underlying expectations that are residing there. And so as a leader, how can we not only recognise, I guess, but manage expectations that that are brought 
to a group and perhaps not even discussed but mm. are sitting there. I wonder whether a really powerful thing to do sometimes is to give per- people permission not to share. Say, for instance, a person starts crying within the group. Something's come up, that person starts crying within the group. Some of the, a natural inclination sometimes is to try to say, hey, what's wrong? Hey, let us know where you're your group. But I wonder whether sometimes, particularly if you know a little bit of the context of what that person's going through, whether there is a, a helpful place for saying, hey, hey, you can really see that you're struggling right now. Or if you don't want to chat about it, that is completely fine. Or if they start telling a story, you know how some people tell stories about struggling they're going through, but they don't use specific details. Mm. And sometimes our compulsion is, if I'm going to pray for you, I want to need, I know details. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the Lord's not going to hear my prayer unless I have details. But the reality is he does hear our prayers, even mm. if we don't have the detail. Mm. And allowing the person to stay in the ambig- with their ambiguous account, their suffering, gives them permission I think it makes it feel safe. it's safe it makes them safe and sometimes when people use metaphors to describe their struggle <laughs> just talking to them within the metaphor rather than asking for the specifics of the story that they're telling you about mm-hmm. uh, can give them permission can, can make them feel safe and can, can encourage an environment where they're more likely to actually feel comfortable speaking about the issues do you think it's true yeah it's good yeah good stuff well let me ask you a question about that what do you what do you think Kurt, the not needing that higher level definition what, mm. what is it what does it communicate to someone i mean you, you talked about uh saying that people don't need to they're not they're not compelled to share what what are, what are we really saying by saying that i mean you could even say that in the group right it's like i mean no group that i ever lead is there any compulsion for anyone to share everyone's mm. got the freedom what is that what is that saying in essence to people when you don't need the detail yeah you don't need the detail you don't need to you don't need to share I if you think, don't want to i feel like it says at the end of the day your solution to your problem is not me uh, that's nice your solution your solution is the lord and although i don't know the details of your life right now and your suffering and although it might be helpful for you to talk about it right now i can i i'm resting assured that he knows those details mm. and so i'm going to pray that he would minister to you in the details that I don't know yeah. because he knows them and he can. I'm hoping that's what it communicates. Yeah. Isn't that? I mean, that itself is kind of peace inspiring, isn't it? Like if, you, if you're in turmoil yourself and there's a brother or a sister who is willing and able to help where they can, but who's also able just to take the foot off the accelerator and just say, yeah, you know what? This is going to be okay if I don't know everything. This is yeah. going to be okay, uh, even if I don't know anything. Why is it going to be okay? Because you've got a you got a shepherd, and uh, he he will look after you. Yeah, mm. and then just offering to pray for people that might not be able to communicate any more than what they've already shared, but just asking, hey, can we pray for you right now about that? I think that communicates a whole bunch of safety as well. That you're just happy to point them towards the one who can minister, be like mm. what you're talking about, Kurt. Because I wonder when when we push for details, it shows kind of almost an anxiety within us that yeah. that we need to know the details in order to do something about it rather than demonstrate to them, hey, the God that I worship, the God that I'm going to pray to is the God who who I trust and that's why I don't need the details right now. Yeah. yeah. And you can trust him as well. I think a, another side to that uh, that I've seen with people is sometimes people sh- have got things going on for them or there's things perhaps that they could actually share and um, yeah, look, it's just, it's too hard to put it into words. 
um, the issue itself, whatever it is that they're wanting to share, is just too intense. And, and I mean, I have been in groups where people have tried to put grievous things that have happened to them in words and long-term suffering into words. And there's a part of me, and I certainly don't mean this in any any rude way at all, but there's a part of me that just kind of goes, well, good luck with that, because that's, that's really... That's really intense. Like, I don't know that I could put it in words that would do it justice. And um, I think that's part of the reason why in the Psalms you see, you know, so many different metaphors for the struggling and the suffering that goes on for the psalmist is because you need more than just a sentence to describe something that's been going on for five years or 10 years. And one of the things that I've found that can really unlock things in groups if someone's in that category. So they're not kind of sharing because these things... It's gnarly and it's long-term. What can really unlock people is um, and be helpful to them is other people in the group. And so it's it's amazing how other people in the group will be resonating with something that someone's saying. And one of the things that I've done in the past in a group is of, you know, Steve will be to my left over here and he's not the one talking, but he's the one nodding his head. And I can see that he understands what (laughs) David has said on the other side of the group. Um, And so sometimes I'll throw to Steve and I'll say, Steve, can you do you understand what's going on? And Steve will go, yeah, totally. Like I totally, I, I think I totally get it. And then he'll start describing it and David will go, yeah, yeah, that's exactly that's, what it is. Yeah. And, and that even, that interaction can really even build group safety because now, you know, David's not on his own anymore because Steve, Steve gets him, you know. Yeah. So now it's not just the leaders who have got David's back, it's Steve as well because Steve's on the same page as him or a similar page. Yeah, and that comes back to the word you used before, Jess, when you said managing expectations. That's a way to manage a group um, is not by always just directing everything to that one person, but when you're in a group, you've got all of that body language going on around you and you manage it by actually incorporating or bringing in other people into the, the thing that somebody's already shared, which is really helpful. And it does create not even a safe place, but it just creates a we're in this together. Um, it just communicates we're in this together. And now that you've shared that, we all um, are a part of that with you. We're in this with you. So what are some um, important things to notice then as we're leading a small group? Are there often things that people are bringing that might seem small and insignificant, but actually hold a lot of significance, things that we should be keeping an eye out to care for and, and lead others well. Yeah, I think on a very simple kind of level, you know, we've talked a lot about being personal and opening, opening ourselves up to each other. Mm. Well, you can't stop people being personal to some extent. And and I guess what I'm talking about is is when, when people in churches get to uh, gather together again as groups, you're just going to have a rich amount of information <laughs> about what's going on for the other person, even if they're not willing to actually open up about stuff. And one of the really simple expressions of this is, uh, is their body, body language. You know, God's made us to communicate what's going on inside of us through our bodies. And, um, you know, so if you're sitting in a group and someone's disinterested, there's something going on. Now, it may be less clear to you what's going on, but there is something going on and you can read that or the smile or the glance away or the frown on someone's face, you just kind of go, oh, okay, something's going on there. And there are sometimes in, in groups in the past where I uh, would throw to people that maybe have a, have a frown on their face or maybe they're smiling while someone else is talking and just go, hey, tell me why you're smiling. Why, why are you 
why are you frowning now? Is everything okay? Or And people don't always want to engage with that, but I just think it highlights the reality that people, I think, at some minimal level are unstoppably personal and, and you just can't, no one can switch it off totally. And um, so just being alert, I think, to the, the little things going on in, in the group, I think, can be really powerful in and of itself. This is on the flip side probably of what Kurt was talking about before about the details and when someone's really vague on the details, um, it's probably that they really don't want to share that and you'd be sensitive to that. But I've actually found some people have given a really specific detail of why they're sharing and it might just seem almost a bit strange that they would share such a specific detail in their story. And I've found that when I've come back to that and said, tell me more about that, um, it's really opened up a whole bunch of other things that um, I wouldn't have known about unless I'd gone back. I'd heard the detail and then I'd gone back and asked them about it. And I've just seen that happen. Mm. And it's like gold when that happens, that someone's thrown in this detail that you go back to and it actually has a whole bunch of other um, stuff attached to that that you can really uncover and, mm. and talk through with them. And that's been really special. Which highlights the power, I think, of... Uh, being attentive to people's stories, mm. you know, maybe that's even maybe that's even a really practical kind of go forward thing for anyone listening who runs a small group. Is okay. We're going to set aside. We're going to give everyone five minutes. We're going to let them know before we our group gets together physically for the first time and just go. Just tell us the story of the last two months for you. Yeah. What's it been like for you? What's work been like? How's your relationship with God? knit it all together for us in a story and, and help us to get back in on the inside to what's been going on for you. Uh, I think that's really powerful to notice some of those kind of detailed things in the context of story. I think imagining going back, my problem is going to be, my problem always when I minister to people is that I think they're me. <laughs> and so I think their story, their experiences, their responses to what's gone on is going to be the same as mine. And, and so I just have to take a breath before I do it and say, no, wait a minute, these people are unique mm. and I need mm. to become a listener. I need to become a listener. I need to do exactly what you're just talking about, listen for their story, look, pick up those little things and not presume they're me. And depend on the spirit in that, you know, like that's how's the spirit going to lead to unique, timely acts of love and words of love that are not, I think that's, I think that's really helpful because I think that, that could be a trap for me too. It's like it's almost like a rote learning and it becomes mechanistic. It's like I know how it works in my life and then I've just got to apply the same thing to someone else. But I think the the existence of the spirit and his uh, living inside of us means we just need to be much more nimble and uh, on our toes for, for what is the unique work that the Lord's up to in the moment. Just as you were talking, Kurt, I was thinking again of um, just my role as a mum and realising when I homeschooled my four kids for five weeks, they had completely different um, perspectives about that time. And so I would hear so somebody would say to them, oh, so what's it like being homeschooled? And the responses that they would give were totally different, but yet they were all, we were doing the same thing at the same time altogether. Um, but the way they viewed that was, um, it was just really interesting to see. And so I think then in the context of getting into a small group, I mean, my kids all had the exact same situation happen, um, but yet they responded differently. So yet people who are, have been in a different situation are going to respond differently again. And so being really aware of um, how people are just different, like you said, that word unique, children are unique. And even though they're in the same family experiencing the same things, they have unique stories. Um, so how much mm. more unique are going to be the people in your group who you're leading? Yeah, for some, 
just there's going to be a physical safety factor that they're considering as they they're coming back to small groups and the anxiety of it, whether it's a real, whether they're at risk because they're more vulnerable or or whatever, this allowing for that those differences without making people feel like ah oh, get over it, you know we should be all fine by now. I think is really important. Yeah. If it's okay, I'd like to switch gears to kind of um, end our conversation today and just talk about the concept of leading in ministry when we're out of season. So there's times when perhaps we're experiencing our own difficulties or struggles or we're just perhaps in a place like you mentioned earlier, Kurt, where we're grappling and struggling to engage with God's word or engage with God overall. Um, It's probably not completely unlikely that there are some people who would be leading small groups who have really struggled in this last season that we've been in and perhaps are wondering, how do I do this? How do I lead well um, when I'm finding it really difficult right now? What are some practicalities in leading when we're struggling? Mm. Well, this is the this is the pointy end of the stick for <laughs> me. Um, I remember when I was uh, teaching full-time and uh, one of the things that I realised is the further you go up in leadership, the smaller the back door is where you can get out if you if you wanted to. And I remember having times as a uh, teacher where I was well and truly, I just felt well and truly out of season in my relationship with God. And because I was a design and tech teacher, I just would quietly not be as involved in spiritual stuff because uh, I just wasn't in a good place to be doing that. And, um, and that I don't think that was wrong, but that was the luxury that I, I kind of had then. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but I can tell you when you get to a lead pastor in a church role or even a paid staff worker, it's like there isn't a back door anymore. Uh, the, the back door's gone and it's been bricked over and you, you're kind of in there. Now, there's a, there's, a, um, there's a painful bind to that. And this, I think that's probably the hardest thing that I find with being in, um, in paid ministry is just not being in a good place and still needing to turn up. The, the weird, I just want to put that intention with something else because what I want to do is I just want to run. I just, I don't want to be there. My introvert starts screaming and saying, this would be really good if you didn't have anything to do with anyone this week um, or you didn't do anything publicly this week. But pulling on that, that, and this is the tension, pulling on that is Second Corinthians that talks about how God's power is made perfect in weakness. Mm-hmm. So that messes with me. You know, and part of the reason why it messes with me is because I don't think, in my experience, that the church has been particularly good at boasting in weakness the way that Paul actually talks about in Second Corinthians. Mm. And so it's it's kind of it's foreign to the church. And to be honest, I think part of the reason it's foreign to the church is because it feels foreign to me. It's like why why would I be in a leadership position leading the charge if I'm not leading the charge like deep deep down mm. you know it just it feels odd and i think part of the feeling odd is right i think that's an odd thing to be leading when you're not in a sweet place yourself um and i think there's you know i think there's um some responsibility to do something about that but i i think what it brings to the fore is is how do leaders be appropriately weak Mm-hmm. in front of the people that they lead. I think that's what it brings forward. And it, and it means that, you know, Peter now has an opportunity in the midst of his sometimes acute weakness in his relationship with God and in his struggle with God. Peter has an opportunity to be open 
um, helpfully open about that so that people don't look to Peter to be the hero, but people people look to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I probably found that less so because I don't have a role, that a formal role or a paid role in the groups that I've been leading. And I think that gives me the luxury, a bit like you're talking about, to just be very vulnerable as a leader without uh, there probably being just any any blurred lines there of just me sharing my life as a um, as a woman, as a disciple of Jesus, as a mum, they're the roles that I kind of go into with um, the leadership that I've been involved in. And so that has allowed me to be more and more vulnerable. And as I've been more and more vulnerable, I just know that it's helped other people. And so that spurs me on to just continue to um, to be vulnerable because I know that uh, it's helped people. Yeah, I, um, I've had to work through this with my Parkinson's and my burnout. And so my my... My sense is now that the kind of that I make a regular habit of sharing vulnerability, but not raw vulnerability that's not been brought to the Lord, but has actually been brought to Him, um, and not found not necessarily you find full resolution for your pain or affliction, mm-hmm. um, but you get to the end of you know two Corinthians twelve there you're talking about where Paul gets to the end and says, but my your my grace is sufficient for you, so. Mm-hmm. I want to bring my vulnerability to people regularly, um, but I want to end with that note that I found the sufficiency of his grace in the midst of my vulnerability mm-hmm. to, to, to show them that process. But at the same time, there have been moments when I haven't been all the way there. It's like, you know, he mm. says he prays the Lord three times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you think earlier on he's still in that angst-ridden place where he's just thinking, I, I can't see any end to this. Or like mm. even in the beginning of 2 Corinthians there where he says he despaired even of life itself. And so there has been times when I have shared publicly with people when I've been in that place because I haven't seen I haven't seen where the grace was coming. I felt hopeless. And so there was one time in particular I was preaching at church and we're doing 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul talks about honouring the weaker parts. And I said, I talked about the fact that I feel like in churches we despise weakness. We don't mm. honour weakness. Mm. We despise weakness. And I said... And so I feel like I need to be honest with you about my weakness. And so then I shared at that point I hadn't, I was basically on the way to burnout. I was on the edge and I was a mess. And so then I publicly just cried and poured my heart out about how much I was really struggling. And I didn't really give much resolution to it, but, but I just felt like the Lord was in it. Like it just, it was a moment. And I felt like this, this group of people needed to know where I needed, where I was so that they could care for me. And because I couldn't see any way forward, I, I needed I needed help. I needed a hand, even as a leader. Mm. Now, the, you get mm. different responses. So one lady said to me afterwards, oh, I don't feel comfortable when my pastor cries. Oh, um, <laughs> and no, that was cool because I, I love her. She's a, she's a wonderful lady. And um, I didn't take that person. Like, I didn't think that was wrong. She just it made her feel uncomfortable. And that's fine. People will respond like that. But for the large majority, nearly everyone basically, there was a, just a really such a warm and gracious and loving response. It was I was so incredibly blessed by that. So, but I wouldn't make that my norm. It's just I think once in a while the Lord kind of puts on your heart to do that, and so you go there and trust Him with it. I think that I think you're right, mate. I think um, there's some real wisdom in you know what to share if you're going to go that deep. How often to go that deep? One of the things I've often a policy of mine, if I can put it that way, I don't have a policy paper on or anything, but a policy of mine is 
is similar to that. It's like I won't share a weakness that's I won't share publicly a weakness that's a glaring piece of unfinished business. But as soon as I'm over the hump and I can see Jesus at work in it and and uh, stabilizing that and uh, and working on that. I'll share it as soon as I possibly can. So that could be a day after it, because I think one of the things that happens when you share, when you're a leader and you share weakness where you're just going, I don't know where to go and I don't know what to do, what that can do is that can, sometimes I think that can create kind of disorientation in people who are looking to you to lead them. Uh, And I think at that point, I think the responsibility of leaders is, uh, if it's going to create that kind of destabilization in the leadership side of things uh i think that's where you just you know i mean i i don't have peter shares with his wife and then he shares with the whole church peter's got a bunch of great elders and he'll go and talk to them about stuff peter will go and talk to kurt about stuff and so it's almost like there's a smaller court of people Mm -hmm. that's probably well less than 10 who will hear about peter's acute weakness when he feels like he's all the lights are out and he doesn't know how to get out of the dark room that he's in. Um, and I, I think that's, that's something that is, has been helpful to me um, in, in my leadership is uh, we don't want to not be open with people about our acute weakness in the middle of it because that's actually where we need the most help. We just need to, be, um, to have a smaller court of people that help us and then as soon as it's safe and as soon as it's going to be helpful for others to be, to be open about it. Yeah, yeah, so having those people is really important. Those people that you know when I'm in a really mm. difficult place, yeah. I've got someone who I can go and talk to and um, who I'm going to be able to share vulnerably even when it's unfinished and I actually have no idea how I'm going to um, mm. get through that or what I need to do. Um, so having those people and you kind of need to have those people pre-prepared because when you get to that place and you don't have them, they're, you just you have nowhere to turn. Mm. But to just have those people yeah, that you're going to move towards when you get to that place and you need to get some extra help. Yeah, I mean, the reality is that everyone's got their own personal kryptonite, I think. Everyone's got that, you know, one or two, maybe three, just trademark kind of weaknesses. It's like in, in a weak moment with not mm-hmm. enough sleep and enough pressure, <laughs> it feels like the whole jumper can unravel, you know. You can just pull on a thread and the whole thing just kind of unravels. Yeah. I've kind of appreciated hearing more publicly people talking about their own personal demons mm. and and i just think yeah, everyone's everyone has got something like that you know where it's like catch me at the right time and i think i really could be in trouble and not know how to get out yeah and i think that's why it's so important for us to have a good community of people around us that know us and i you know Renee, your husband nathan is one of those and it wasn't that long ago i was on the phone to him struggling with something personally and and he knows me and he knows my struggle and he's, and it was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm aware that this is a struggle for you. And yep. it was just so helpful to have a, uh, a brother who knows me um, when I'm a little bit stuck in something yep. to, to be able to have a conversation with without having to tell the whole church, if, yep. if that makes sense. Yeah, it's gold to have yeah. those <laughs> conversations. Thank you all for sharing. I have no doubts that today's conversation will just be really helpful. I think the honesty that's been shared here today and the practicalities about leading small groups and particularly leading in weakness will just bring a lot of strength, I hope, to people that are listening to this podcast episode. So thank you, um, Peter and 
Kurt and Renee for being here with us today. As always, I'd like to end with a scripture. And today we're going to leave you with 2 Corinthians 12 verses 9 to 10. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Thank you for listening to the Restore Ministries Australia podcast. If today's episode was a blessing to you and you would like to support our ministry, please visit www.restoreministries.com.au forward slash donate. Every generous donation is used to further equip and serve the broader church to see people restored to true humanity. Or if you would like to access further articles, videos and resources, please visit our website, restoreministries.com.au and head to our resources page. Restore Ministries Australia, a catalyst for Christ-centred change.